Hi, my name is Joe, and I'm addict to pretty much anything I've ever come in contact with. Hey, Joe. Um, someone asked me one time what my drug of choice was. I said more. <laughs> Maybe we are kindred spirits. So what I'm, um, what I get the honor of doing today, is is talking to family. I've been in recovery for a long time, and uh, never ever have I got to talk before a more esteemed group to me. Because you're all family. And, and it's not a light claim. If you got writ, written or mentored by Denise, you got mentioned in my bedroom. <laughs> so, I assume because everyone in here, I think, is either a member, a graduate, or a staff member. Is that true? Anyone not in one of those categories? Then we can just take take the clothes off. We can run around naked in this room. We know each other, right? So, so you guys probably want to know the why, right? I mean, that's why people curious because they they look at who we are today and they can't picture who we were, right? That's why the profundity of, of AA's original program, the, the, what I was like, what happened, and what I'm like now. You'll have your own perception of what I'm like now. I'm going to have to tell you what I was like. And it isn't going to have anything to do with the circumstances of my life, because our circumstances were probably vastly different. It's going to be about my human condition and how destitute I was in spirit. Because to a person... We don't get well until we die. Right? Yeah. So I started out in a, in a political family. Um, my grandfather was a senator. My other grandfather was a sheriff. They're long time. I always lived in the state of Arizona. My parents always lived in the state of Arizona. And my grandparents always lived in the state of Arizona. And I'm not native or Hispanic. That makes me very rare. <laughs> right? Yeah. Um, I was raised in this sort of upper middle class family. They were my mother was a school teacher, my father was a business person. The expectation was I was gonna do everything right. I was gonna go to school, I was gonna go to college, I was always gonna do more than them because that's what my head told me. But somewhere between my head and my heart I always felt inadequate to the task. I don't know if any of you ever felt a calling on your life that was greater than you imagined yourself being able to pull off, but that's how I lived a lot of my youth. By the time I was 10 years old, I was hospitalized for the first time for alcohol overdose. So that might have clued somebody in. I was probably not safe around alcohol and drugs, but it never, it never really came to my imagination that that was an issue. I had grown up with people drinking and I didn't know about drugs so much because of the nature of my family, but everyone drank. They drank profusely. I thought that's what you were supposed to do. What I didn't know is they had a different effect than I had. I didn't know that for a long time and I don't know if any, I noticed there's people here years in recovery and there's people here days in recovery. I want to tell you two recovery stories through the course of this just in case you're you're, you know, if it'll help. I, I, mean, I, I realize my opinion of, of your life is meaningless, so I'll try not to offer it. 
But I'll share you my experience of my life and how some suffering may have been averted if I hadn't have been quite as hard-headed as I was. So anyway, hospitalized at 10, always feeling inadequate, but I was always that guy that could not really do that much in school, but do okay. I would get by and I would get the grades and I got on to college and uh, I got to college and I wasn't very happy. I was working my way through college as a construction worker. The construction workers seemed like they were having more fun. I was making a lot of money for the time, 1976 through 1980. I'm making $15, $16 an hour in those days. That was serious bank. And so it was harder and harder for me to go back to school. So I decided to take a little time off. One of the things I learned about taking a little time off and getting used to money is there's never enough money because my drug is more. And once you take time off, you don't go back readily. That's just a lesson I learned. So eventually I did go back and get a little more schooling after some years in construction, getting drunk and getting fired from jobs and all that kind of crap. And I didn't do a lot of drugs because I started drug testing and it was hard. You couldn't, couldn't keep a job and do a job. If you, you know, it was pretty, you know, there wasn't no medical marijuana. There wasn't a, none of that bullshit. If you, you popped hot, you're out, you know what I mean? And uh, so, so that was, it, it is, yeah in its way was pretty simple. When I finally got through my collegiate experience, early 80s, I go to work for this British firm. And I only tell you that they were a British firm because it's an interesting part of the why, how we get to this from the deplorable state I found myself. But, but um, this British firm hired me and pretty soon I'm a regional manager and I'm flying around the country with cocaine in a briefcase. I had a typical briefcase of the 1980s. I had the mirror in the briefcase where you lifted it up and you could just lean into it on the plane and uh, take a bump and just made the flight better. You know what I mean? <laughs> so, um, anyway, that was my life and they paid for the travel and they paid for the drinking and the carousing and, and I learned that cocaine made it easier when I drank until three in the morning when I had to get up at six to go sit in meetings all day. If you had an eight ball in your pocket and your little, you know, Insta hit and you could, you could make it through most any meeting. And that was my life. That, that was my life and I had arrived and by the ripe old age of 27, I was losing that job and I found myself in the very first detox that I ever ended up in. So my introduction to recovery came at the ripe old age of 27. And as you can see from the guy standing before you, some time has passed since then. <laughs> so why do I tell you that? Well, I got here the same way everyone else did. I thought I was having fun. It was all shits and giggles until it wasn't. All of a sudden there was consequences. I had a young family by then. They were disappointed. They were without provision. Um, and I'm in this, at that point you didn't get to go to residential because there was a bunch of treatment and then it didn't work. Treatment centers charged a lot of money and the efficacy wasn't good. And so they quit paying for it with most insurance. And so you basically did a, a quick spin dry and then you might do some outpatient or whatever. And so 
that was the deal. I, I dug in. I knew because I had lost so much so fast, I really needed to do recovery. And so I dug in and I went to the fellowships of that time, mostly AA, um, CA may not have even been fully operational then. CMA was not, HA certainly was not, NA was around, but they were few and far between. So it was AA in those days. And I went into a fellowship where people, quite frankly, talked complete nonsense. But I didn't know that it was nonsense because I was earnest about wanting to get well and do right. But they said things to, like, to me like, well, all you got to do is get to a meeting and don't pick up no matter what. Okay. So I would go to meetings and I would not pick up no matter what. I always had a certain restlessness in me, but I did that. And they would tell me things like, if you haven't had your, or if you can't remember your last drink, you haven't had it yet. <laughs> okay, I'm going to think real hard about my last drink. I'm not trying to poke fun, but I'm telling you some messages I heard. Play the tapes, think it through, say the prayer, turn it over. Nobody told me the story that the authors of AA's book tells me. Having had a spiritual awakening as the result of these steps, we tried to carry this message to the alcoholic who still suffered. So I heard a lot of nonsense and a lot of opinions, and I esteemed them because people carried chips with digits on them. And I believed all that crap, and I progressively got more and more influential and wealthy and I started a construction company that eventually was operating in 13 states. I started it from scratch with a truck I was making payments on and a bunch of pawn tools and started in the mines up in Claypool, Arizona, as a matter of fact, and Hayden, Arizona. I'm pointing to some of my fellow Gila County. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, and, and we made a, a tremendous amount of money. The rumor about me in town was that I made my money on cocaine. But in fact, I did not. I just borrowed from mafiosos, and I came in with sac suitcases of cash to pay my payrolls, and it looked like I made my money on cocaine. <laughs> Whole nother story for another time. <laughs> if any of you have ever borrowed money from... Them, that crowd, you not only get it green, you got to pay it back green. That's why it's a whole other story, because it's hard to pay back that much green. You can't get a hold of it. Anyway, another story. Tell me you know what I'm talking about, huh? <laughs> yeah, green's hard to burn, and it's hard to recollect. Anyway, I digress. So, Somewhere along the line in that construction company, I'm running around 13 states. I've got hundreds of people. I mean, this operation compared to the breadth of that is small, just so you know. I had 800 employees scattered over 13 states. And all of them stepping and fetching everything I uttered. And somewhere along the way, I got a little uh, institutional or industrial injury 
and I got prescribed pain medication. And guess what happens to a guy like me addicted to more when you get pain medication? Guess what happens when you got 13 states, everything's not in, interconnected. I had 13 states worth of doctors I could lie to about my condition. So I found myself with all this stuff strung out on opiate painkillers. And even with all the resources at my command, I could not keep up with the beast I was feeding. And so eventually what happens is what happens to addicts without fail. My 10 years of sobriety, of course, went away in a poof, really wasn't even a thought. I'm strung out on pain medication. The business is failing around me. I can't even go to work. I've got this horse ranch up in the, right by the hospital. Um, 17 acres, I got all these painted horses, you know, and, and I can't even get off the couch. I'm so busy, I, I send out for someone to bring me liquor. My business is failing and I'm just drinking myself to death and whatever, I, did, I completely given up. Eventually lost the business, came to Phoenix, and ultimately lived, ended up living on the street. So I don't know if any of you have ever made it to the streets as a residence, um, but I, with my upbringing, was not equipped for that. I mean, we all like to talk with, with bravado that we can handle anything, but any of us that have ended up on the streets know that that is a reality that most of us are not prepared for. And uh, anyway, no one gave a shit about my college degree or what I had done in the past out there on the streets. And, and ultimately, I stumbled for years with getting a little sobriety, try to come back to the rooms, hearing the same nonsense that I just never could put together time again, never could. I'd get working somewhere. I got a job because of what I had done in construction. I got a job with a state agency because I'd put a lot of money in a political campaign. The guy put me in a, in a pretty responsible position in the state agency, but, but I ended up homeless again. I had a 20-inch parrot. I gotta tell you the whole story, you gotta get this picture. I'm homeless, I got a car without a plate because I hadn't been paying for the insurance, so the cops stopped me, felt sorry for me. I wasn't too loaded at the time, I guess. They let me go, but they took my plate right there on the highway. So I drove around without a plate, with a parrot on my shoulder. And because I was high enough up in the agency, I could park it inside where they couldn't see me, you know, the Capitol Police. And so I, I literally, me and the parrot, ran my job there for some period of time, and then you kind of couch surf and you get by. And if you are at, on the street at night and you encounter a guy with a parrot, those of you who've been on the street, when someone's that freaking nuts, we don't go near them. <laughs> So it's a, like it's a safety valve, you know what I mean? So if you and if you don't, if you guys that have been on the street, you know, right? We, you, if, even if I, even if I'm not crazy, I'm going to act crazy, and pretty soon I'm acting so crazy, I don't even know if I'm acting. Tell me, you know. So by the time I finally just don't think I can go any further, I land in yet one more detox, and there's this endless stream of detoxes I keep going to. Some of you probably remember that. But all you guys kind of went to the big, the big, one. The big <laughs> detox. So that's, maybe you didn't go bumping like I did, but 
because that's not part of my story. I didn't get to that part with you guys. Not that I didn't deserve it. But um, anyway, I end up in this, this detox just for brevity's sake. And I, uh, I had been trying to get clean again for 10 years. I mean, literally for 10 years. I had had about 10 years clean time. Now I've been trying to get, I couldn't, I mean, it's, I couldn't even get a 30 day chip if any of you can relate to me. I, I had a guy tell me in an AA meeting one time, he, I always respected him. He may still be alive. But anyway, he said, he said, Joe, whatever you do, never lose the humility to stand up for your 24 hours. He said, I don't care if you take the chip, but stand up and let them know that you're back and you're in your first 24 hours. If you do that, eventually that little act of faith will get you the grace you need. So I took it to heart, you know. And I had a sack of freaking 24-hour chip meth. Because I came up through the homeless shelter, and if you've ever been to a meeting at the homeless shelter, everybody there has got nothing. So if you offer something, they all come get one. So it takes a lot of 24-hour chips to do it. And I supplied that for like 60 days, just with my chips, after I cleaned up. So that's how, how bad it got. But um, anyway, I, I end up in this one more detox, and I'm there. And they told me there was a meeting on the floor, and they said it was a CA meeting. Now, I told you my AA experience, when you come in, when I came in, there weren't all these fellowships, and CA was one of the earlier ones, but I thought they were elitists, right? Because, okay, what bullshit is that? Right? We all did cocaine. I didn't mark of honor because I was completely <laughs> twisted. I couldn't afford cocaine on the way back, dude. There weren't no cocaine unless people were passing it out. You know what I mean? It was good to do with cheap hooch. But, um, but anyway, the guy comes and you got nowhere. If you've been in a detox, you know what I'm talking about. There's a hell of a lot else you got to do. And I'm detoxing hard from the opiates and all the shit, so I need to do something because I don't feel good. And I go to this meeting, and this guy, considerably younger than me, came out of the Texas prisons, is what he said, but he started going through AA's book. I'd seen people get up and talk and wave the book and quote the book. This cat was breaking it down, talking about the sensory experience, the power we call God. He was talking about the tangible resurrection of a ruined life. He was talking about just bringing to life the experience of the authors of that text. And I, in my stupor, knew if I could get that guy to tell me how he found out what he knew, that I would never be the same again. I don't know why I knew that, because, I, again, I'd been through a lot of stuff, but I knew that about that moment and that man. And so... As soon as that meeting ended, I asked him, hey, would you mind showing me how you found out what you just talked about? And I really kind of thought, because I didn't look very good and probably didn't smell very good, you know, that he would, you know, sure, sure, or no, or whatever. But he was very gregarious. Absolutely, I would love to take my number, call me when you get out. I'll be there that day. And I couldn't believe it. I mean, he was clean and fresh and well-spoken. And why would he do that for me? 
right? But I took his number, and as he started to walk out the door, he spun on his heels. I'll never forget. He spun, and he goes, on second thought, you don't look very good. You better call me before you get out. I know to this day that was the Holy Spirit that made him do that. I don't know what you guys believe, but I know it is because I would not have made it to call him after I got out. So I called him before I got out. And I hadn't taken any instruction from anyone in a long time, but I took instruction from that man because I don't think I was talking to a man to this day. I mean, I know he was a man, but I don't think that's what was happening to me. And so I called him before I got out, and he says, okay, where are you going to go? And my parents had allowed me to come to their home one more time. And so I told him I'm going to go to my parents and told him where that was. And he said, okay, I'll be there whatever time in the morning, but sometime in the morning. I woke up early that morning. I went into the bathroom at my parents' house. I opened the medicine cabinet, and there was a bottle of cologne in there with an atomizer top. And many of you that are drinkers, know that when it gets going bad that you can drink things like cologne sterno those cans over there i could warm those up and drink that stuff and get out of dt's i knew these things and so i'm contemplating even though i know this guy is coming that's why i know that the holy spirit made him turn around so i set it up because if i'd have had to wait to call him if he wasn't already coming I was going to drink that, but I knew he was coming, and it had an atomizer top, and I knew I wasn't going to be able to hide the bottle when I broke the neck off. Now, I told you guys maybe a little bit, but I drank pretty seriously. I would go on DTs. I was drinking a couple handles a day at the end. So, yeah, the gallon ones. Just a 24-hour. And uh, so for me to drink a three-ounce bottle of cologne was kind of a fart in a hurricane. Right, <laughs> but in that state of mind, right? So I didn't do it because of that. The cat shows up, and what I know now is that prior to him showing up, the whole thing was already set in motion. I, some of you that have come to the PON, I talked to you about that. That first step experience, the encounter generally happens to us before we ever make it to recovery. And when I get to sit down with someone to help them with the first step, we, we walk them back to, to the point. But for me, I'm, I'm back to my parents' house prior to the detox. I'm laying on the floor, detoxing hard, and I'm trying to absorb some cool from the floor. And I'm watching my parents and I'm thinking they're judging me, and it finally the revelation came to me. They're not judging me. They're terrified of me. They're scared to death. Their son's going to die on the floor in their house, and they don't know what the fuck to do about it. And all of a sudden, I knew in an instant, I cannot do this to these people anymore. And the minute that happened, that whole thing set new chain of events. I went back to the detox. I met the man. And now he's sitting there in front of me. So I'm telling you, my encounter with this power we call God happened the minute I turned my thoughts to somebody else, long before I had any idea where I was going. And all of a sudden, this guy is making sense of that damn book. He was showing me the, the experience of the authors, and he actually knew what he was talking about. And now he's sitting down, and we're going through the, the first step, the identification of the one symptom an addict has in common with another addict, the 
abnormal reaction to the chemical when I put it in my body, and a lot of people don't explain that in the modern rooms, and we go to great lengths to make sure you understand. That's the one symptom we have in common. If when you drink alcohol, you are energized by that chemical, you might be an alcoholic, because that is an abnormal reaction to a sedative. Absolutely. Doctor would call that an allergic reaction. If when you do methamphetamine, you find that you are calmed down, that is an abnormal reaction. If when you do opiates, you find that you are energized, yeah. that is a particularly abnormal reaction. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, we hear that silly shit, right? And people miss the point, wait a minute, that really is me. See, I thought I drank like other people, but other people drinking with me knew I did not. Those people would get in a car with me and go, you should drive, you're the most sober. And they watched me put down a gallon and a half. So, and I finally had some people tell me that. Like, Jesus, Joe, I don't know what it is with you. You put that stuff in your body, you're going. And it didn't matter what the stuff was. But anyway, so he showed me that, and I acknowledged that. And then he talked to me about this power we call God. Now, you guys that know me now, you may, I mean, they call me Pastor Joe, and they, that was not me. Believe that. I had, you know, I was raised in an Episcopal family. I stole the communion wine and got drunk in the back of the church. I thought it was all a big fucking joke. That's what I thought. But this guy explained to me how to find my experience in AA's book, and he pointed out to me that we've been looking outside of ourselves for our ease and comfort all our life, and that's why the addictive condition is so particularly appealing to me, because it was ease and comfort instantly. All I have to do is get it, ingest it, ease and comfort, no matter what. And he says, for you, the only thing that you can do is go inward, just like the AA's. Where is that power found? Deep down inside. How do we find it? Sometimes we have to search fearlessly. All of a sudden, I finally understood why they got that fucking inventory shit on them. Why? I'm not telling the son of a bitch anything anyway. I'm not copping to nothing. <laughs> Anyone relate to me? So now I understood I have been asleep all my life to the power to live within me. I've been walking around asleep dreaming I was awake. Wow. And I started digging in with him. I shook so bad that I could not write. So he said, here, let me write it for you. I can see you cannot write it. And he said, talk slow. And I did. And he, I had to spell for him. He wasn't as well educated as I. I was going to tell you, the English firm that hired me also sent me to Cambridge, England. So, you are probably with one of the few people in Arizona and certainly the first one of the few people that you're going to meet in recovery rooms that actually attended Cambridge University. I was at there at the same time that one of the royal family was there at King's College, but we didn't run in the same social circles. And uh, the one they called Randy Andy, if you guys are old enough to remember Randy Andy. So anyway, anyway, so he shows me this this experience of these guys, and I instantly realized that I had to do an inventory. I can't tell you I 
felt a flow of the Spirit at that time, although I know today that there must have been a flow of the Spirit because this guy was pretty in tune. He wouldn't have moved me forward. But I knew I had to get through that inventory, and he starts writing, and I start talking, and I get right to the end, and he looks me right in the eye, and he says, what are you holding back? And I'm looking at him like, how the fuck do you know? <laughs> this is pretty troubling. <laughs> so I kicked out little stupid what it was, sexual thing. But whatever. We we all hold something back. Mine was particularly benign, but I kicked it out and all of a sudden it was like a weight came off of me. Because his demeanor didn't change and I felt lighter and anyway he he goes, okay, there it is. Now, what you need to do, he took me to the back of the book, or in the middle of the book, in the into action section, and he showed it to me, and he, he said, once we have taken this step with holding nothing, we are delighted. How do you feel? I said, wow. I don't know that I'm delighted, but I do feel lighter. <laughs> he goes, okay, we'll take it. He said, now, it says here, returning to our home, we're going to be quiet for an hour. Said, I'm going to leave. i got to go take my girlfriend to lunch. You call me in an hour. If you don't call me in an hour, it's been nice meeting you. If you do call me in an hour, I'll be back here in a few minutes, and we'll get on with it. And I went and looked through it, processed my inventory, thought about it, came up with a couple more things I probably should share. But I was really worried that I wasn't going to call him on time because I really believed he was going to dust me. So I, I was watching the clock so I could call him in exactly an hour. I called him in exactly an hour and I blurted out whatever else I thought at the time. And he says, okay, I'm on my way. And he showed back up and we sat down and we looked at this six and seven step which seems to be such a mystery to people he explained to me that the third step prayer was simply half of the prayer the seventh step prayer now that you're armed with the facts about yourself you know what your life of restitution looks like you're going to go make amends for harms done you're going to go admit to people what you've done what you thought of them and ask them what that you can do to make it right you're going to do all those things and you're going to have to get honest with yourself right now before you get into a seven step prayer because at that point you're asking for agreement and everything is going to suck from, for you from then on when you don't do what you committed to. Mm. He didn't lie to me, by the way, because I didn't always behave the best since that time, and I found out it wasn't as much fun as it used to be. I don't know if any of you have had that, con that happen when you finally decided you were going to go the right way, and then maybe you fell a little short, and it just wasn't as much fun. So, anyway... We go through that little process of sorting out what I really am willing to do right now, what I'm gonna to need to prayer and meditate on to get ready for, and the things that I honestly am just never gonna do. And, and uh, my list of things I would never do was not that great, more because I was a people pleaser than <laughs> because I didn't want to tell he was big and young and I was pretty sure he could whoop me and I didn't want to tell him. <laughs> There was something I didn't was never going to do, but I, I, you know, I figured I better put something on the list or you'll know I'm lying. You know what I mean? So, so I went through that process, and then after I got that sort of list, we said the prayer. 
We got an amen. I did feel a bit of a flow of the spirit, but I also felt a spirit of terror on me. And he asked me, he goes, what's going on with you right now? I said, well, I just don't feel safe. See, I had been living in here with me for a long time, and I knew the guy who lived in here, and I knew as soon as this man left, no matter what I committed to, the old me is going to be the old me, and he's very strong. So I told him, I do not feel safe, and he said something to me I still think is very profound. He said, Joe, if you don't feel safe, you are not safe. He says, you really better get busy. And I said, busy doing what? He said, well, you just said, it, said a prayer for power. You've got some amends you're willing to do. Make them. I only tell you that to tell you this. I've heard people say you do your steps one a year. You do, you do your fucking steps as quick as you'd get to the dope man. That's my experience. Do what you're going to do. But the truth is, if you told me I only had to do one hit of something once a year to get to where I'm going, I got no time for you. You don't, do, you don't use drugs in the way I do. I, I don't believe in one a year. I don't believe in one and done. So, so what I did in that day is I left and I started making amends. I called my brother and admitted to stealing narcotics out of his He's a veterinarian. When you steal horse narcotics, that's some good shit. <laughs> Have some, you know, you might find yourself out in a pasture eating something. But anyway, and, and I talked to my parents about stuff and I, and I, and I had to, Denise has seen me tell this story before, it's hard for me to tell, but I had an ex-wife at the time. I had really devastated them because I'd lost that business, and so I had not only the, the first ex-wife, but the, the kids from that, but then two more kids, and lost the home, and the second home, and the business, and, you know, so I, she's in recovery to this day, and uh, so I called her and told her I, I needed to make amends if she's willing to hear it, and she let me, um, it's always hard for me to talk about. <clears throat> she let me come over that night and talk to her. And um, and I just it laid out what I just told you, what I had done, the devastation that I had done to that family. And, and said, I don't know if I ever can make it right, but if you'll tell me what I can do, I'll, I'll endeavor to do it. And she, she looked at me and she goes, I've been praying for this for years. She goes, you just did it. Just keep doing what you're doing. And I was free. I was untethered from that. So um, it's when we talk with some of you are feeling me. You know what I mean? I can't. This isn't a show for you. I'm. It's just deep, deep. I got free of me finally. I got relieved of the bondage itself. Yeah. In that instant, and um, I realized that there is no action without a reaction. So I need to pay attention. To my action. I realize that God is both cause and effect. So don't get it twisted, Joe. You've never done anything. You've never come up with anything. You've been used as an instrument all your life. You think that's not true? In 1982, the first construction project I was ever on as a manager was building this hotel. Now, I didn't know when I was building it up to my 
ass and mud and doing what we were doing that one day we'd be sitting here doing this. But, but I started going out and I started serving people and I was so destitute. I mean, I didn't have anything and didn't have anything for a long time. I had, had this rundown car that someone had given me bald tires. I got to tell you some, I don't even know how I'm doing time-wise. How are we doing? No, we don't have all day. That'd be terrible. <laughs> I heard Father Joe Martin give a talk one time, and he said, he said, if you're ever up here and I'm out there, I hope you'll show me the courtesy I'm going to try and show you. He said, when I'm up here and you're out there, I understand you're spending the most important commodity every human being has. You're spending your time. Absolutely. And, and so I want to honor your time. And so I don't want to waste it, but I hope I'm going to share something with you. Um, so I carry those messages with me because they're profound to me, right? So, so anyway, I start working with people. I go to the halfway houses. I, I was still working at the state. There was a job I didn't manage to lose. And, and I'm working at the state, and, and I'm right by the cast homeless shelter, which, interestingly enough, I, you know, some, some buddies there. But uh, I would bring them in in the morning. I'd get, you know, real early, and I'd just have all the homeless guys around my conference table, and we'd be doing the steps. And all the shopping, shopping carts were parked outside. <laughs> hours and hours and hours of taking people to the steps. I'd sneak them in, and we'd do their laundry back in the, the back of the thing. Cause they, you know, I mean, that's just what we did, because that's what we do. And uh, anyway, um, in time, I started realizing that this was more, this calling was more, this op opportunity to serve was more. I, I, the magic of that book coming to life struck me so profoundly. The Spirit convicted me that as long as I have breath in my lungs, I need to do for anyone else who, who will listen what that man did for me, which is why PON is what it is. Years and years and years, I, I go. I don't give a shit if it's Thanksgiving. I don't, I've missed it twice in the last 16 years. I was hospitalized both times. So, so yeah, and that ain't had anything to do with me. I'm talking to you about the power in me. I'm not allowed to not do it. And I know people don't get it, but I just want people to know that our fellowship is not our program. Our program is in that book, whether you're NA, whether you're CA, whether you're HA. If you want to talk about a profound change in your life, you're not going to find it by sitting in a chair. You're going to find it within you, and then you're going to do what their testimony says. You're going to offer yourself to another because, see, God doesn't need anything. I offer myself to thee to build with me and do as thou wilt. Well, if you come from certain traditions, you know what God did because God didn't need anything. He sent his son here to do for us what we couldn't do. And he expects me to carry on that tradition. And that doesn't mean talking to you. That means walking with you. That means carrying your burdens when you can't carry them. And, and so what happened was I'm doing these step studies and my buddy Jay Dow comes in. He starts filming it. He starts launching it on Sober Motor Company. The next thing I know, I'm getting letters from Florence Complex asking me questions about the step studies. And I've known my share of people that went to, I've known my share, of people, my share of people who went to prison, but I didn't know that many. 
And so I was like, how did I get to be a household name in the big house? <laughs> so I start looking to find out how that happened, and Jay introduces me to Joe Chapetta. And Joe Chapetta set up the TV station. Some of you may have known him on North Unit, I don't know, but he set up the TV station. They started running the recovery meetings, and then people were starting to get the recovery message, and, and that was the whole deal. And then I met Joe Chapetta, and the Holy Spirit convicted me that that man needed direction, and I was the guy that was supposed to provide that direction, because I'm the guy that had the college degree. I didn't have a felony. I had advanced experience in politics. I had all of the components that Joe did not have, and he had this profound story of a lifer who had no hope of ever getting out, but his response to that was to help other people stay out. And he met Najee, who had three life sentences, who had no hope of ever getting out. And his response to that was keep Joe out of trouble long enough to help people get out and stay out. <laughs> Which I didn't know at the time that I was going to have to take over Najee's job out here, keeping Joe out of trouble, but that's how it fucking turned out. That's all true, isn't it, Denise? Some of you that know us well, you know that's true. Even Joe, I'll send him a recording. But anyway, <laughs> anyway, I was so moved by what you guys go through, what you experience inside, what you experience outside, the impossibility of re-entering without somebody that gives you a little bit of non-judgmental help and help you. And so we started wrestling with the idea of how do we help them and the need is so great, how do we figure it out? And so we use the vetting process that you see now. We, Denise just, she always had a passion to write people inside. She started writing a whole lot more. We went to Santa Rita, we wrote thank you notes and Christmas cards to the first 100 of you guys, or however many. You spread the word as you moved around, and now we're writing to 2,300, 2,400 a month. Most of them from my freaking bedroom, just so you know. <laughs> you think we're working here, come to my house sometime. <laughs> Who's, who knows who's been there you know that's true so so anyway we started doing this thing and we finally encountered the, the financial partners to do this they showed us this list of subject properties and there was a lot of them and a lot of them were not nearly as expensive but I saw this one and because of what I told you earlier I knew this was where we were coming the most expensive property on the thing most expensive to operate, most expensive to buy, but I knew that's the one we had to have, so we went in, we pitched it, and uh, we went through all kinds of stuff. We were here for a whole year working in here with just a few of us, all volunteers. It was like a horror movie running around here. But we were here, and, and uh, we knew that we needed to prepare a seat for you guys. And, and so I always tell you guys, if you don't know, you don't have to know. You don't even have to believe me. I'm just telling you, there was a time in your life that you probably thought everyone had forgotten you, that you had hosed it so bad that who the hell cares about me? I do. Denise does. Thank you. The God we serve does, right? The God we serve does. And it's not theoretical to us. God's not a concept. God is a restorer and a redeemer. Yes. Yes. And we want you to know it. Not because we say it, because we walk it. That's right. 
I want you to follow me around every day if you doubt a thing I've said and see if I'm lying to you. Because I exist to serve. And I'm the CEO. <laughs> but the Son of Man came to serve rather than to be served. And I believe it. And I, I hope to emulate it. And um, again, I've never been more honored than to get to speak to this group right here. In all the years I've been in recovery, and that's a few, um, you guys are the best. You humble me. So thank you very much.